Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at the Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and I'm glad to be able to review Red Skull's management techniques as employed by Nick Fury. <laughs> That's right. Today we're talking about Minute 3, which begins with Fury asking for Coulson's assessment and ends with the return of Eric Selvig. All right, Andy, can I open with a statement? I have an opening statement. statement. If opening anybody statement. ever asks you, if you were ever to ask me in this situation, how bad is it? The answer will always be, it's bad. There is no, <laughs> that's the problem. There's no nuance. It's bad. The plan is not working. That's what I would say. I think that's silly. Uh, and I was so excited, Andy, that we actually get Nick Fury <laughs> telling Coulson to just do better because it harkens back to Red Skull asking his people to do better by a percentage. <laughs> 70%. And I feel like this is going to be a thread that's going to continue through our exploration of the MCU. Do better. Not by how much, but just better. So it's softened a bit, but we can do better. Hitler had his mind conf. I wonder what Red Skulls. What was Johann Schmidt's version of that that Nick Fury's been reading? Oh, right. do better. I well, like that. I like <laughs> under the Tuscan sun. He's really a romance nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Red sunset, like my face. Do you think yes. that uh, that Sam Jackson n- knew what he was saying as he was saying it? Like, did he just memorize <laughs> the words, or do you think he really understands what the the impact of what's going on? I mean, I feel. I, where's where's your energy coming from for that? Are you are you not enjoying watching Samuel L. Jackson in this in this scene? I love Samuel Jackson in this. I love Samuel Jackson in this, and I love him as Nick Fury. He is wonderful. Let me just say that out right but, out the gate. Okay, there's a but here. Right. No, I'm going to say and and I think he is an incredibly popular actor. And I'm not entirely sure he needs to know from movie to movie <laughs> what he's actually in. <laughs> like, like, there are a lot of words in here. And I feel like I've seen, I need to go back and look for it. I feel like there's a clip of an interview of him uh, being at, maybe it was by um, Fallon. I think it was Fallon asking him some questions about dark energy or whatever. And he was like, man, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's like, you just did a whole movie about it. You're in this epic series and you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I find that uh, sort of delightful. It is. It is. But to a certain extent, though, you get into this sort of stuff and you have these these comic book writers and these screenwriters who are going into all of this sort of uh, technical, we'll, we'll call it techno-fantastical mumbo-jumbo. Yes. As they're kind of crafting all of this stuff to somewhat make sense. It's kind of, to a certain extent, like, I mean, I've heard George Clooney say, say the same thing about his years on ER and how they had all of this very technical medical dialogue to say. And they're just like, I don't know what I'm saying. I just have to memorize all these acronyms and things that we're doing in, in this clampity, clampity, dampity thing and whatever <laughs> to fix this person up. And it's the same sort of thing. It's like it the exactly whole right. point of their job is to, you know, no. Now, that's different than the people like in Apollo 13 who were very specifically wanting to make sure they knew what all the things were because they wanted it to be legit and they wanted to know why they were doing those things. So I think there's a different level of learning that. But they were also flying in those, you know, the the vomit comet and stuff like yeah, that. Right, so, I mean, right. they, they looked at it as probably just a whole part of the fun. Whereas here, it's very much is different. 
this is my favorite time to bring up Gelman amnesia, which is like when you know a thing, you feel like you are invested in a thing. And when you don't know a thing, you get to look at it like a fan. And when I'm watching ER, I don't need to know that Clooney doesn't know what the medical stuff is. But when I'm a fan of an MCU movie of the Avengers, it kind of hurts my heart a little bit to know that the people <laughs> portraying these people that I love aren't as big a fan as I am. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's that's the the conundrum that we're in right now, that these are adults playing dress up on screen. And, yeah. And I want them to be as hardcore as I am from moment to we're, moment. Right. When Gwyneth Paltrow said, like, I don't know what movie. Was I in that movie? <laughs> yeah, right. That's where you're like, wait a minute. See, like Tom Aren't Holland. You Pepper, don't you know everything about yeah, Pepper Potts? Haven't exactly. you read a comic that she's in? Yeah. And I think you compare Gwyneth Paltrow to Tom Holland, who, like, is a legit young fan of the things that he's doing and is blown away by his fortune and Gwyneth Paltrow who's like now wait what goop what now like I I feel like that's <laughs> that's an important uh, distinction so all that said I am a Nick I, I'm a Sam Jackson fan are you I mean I tell me you're a fan of Sam as Nick I, I love Samuel L. Jackson. I think he's great as Nick Fury. He carries the weight of the character. He carries this presence that works very well for somebody in authority. Yeah, I mean, if he's saying some of these lines, it's like, you know, they work because they're coming out of his mouth. Like, he just throws them out with authority, and you just go along with it, whether he knows what he's talking about or not. I think that's that's how things are played here. As it should. Yeah, right, right. Um, so what's happening though? So yeah, Fury gets out of the helicopter and what I love about the way that the moment plays, as, as we talked about in the last minute, you've got the first time we're getting to hear the Avengers theme. It's a slow build with it over the course of the last minute. And then of course it leaves in a cliffhanger where you get the last two notes of it at the start of this minute, but that punctuates when Nick Fury then says, how bad is it? And then agent Coulson, that's the problem, sir. We don't know. And that's what you're joking about, because, like, why don't you know that it's a problem? It's bad. Yeah. What's actually happening here? It's I mean, it's a setup. It's a mystery. Like, what's actually happening? You know, it's telegraphing for us. Oh, something's happening. We don't know why. But this is where we also find out Dr. Selvig's involved. The Tesseract's involved. We're getting a sense of these pieces. Now that you know the Tesseract is surging, we're having these strange, spontaneous surges from the Tesseract. As Maria Hill says, it just turned itself on. So something is happening with the Tesseract. Do you feel now, as you're watching this, oh, right, some strange voice on some rock in space was just talking about the Tesseract. They must be doing something with it. Like, do you feel like coming into something with the Tesseract, you got all this energy on the shield base here of all these people running around frantically. Do you feel like, okay, I see that now we're creating a connection? No. do you want to know where my head goes with the tesseract it goes back to captain america oh so you're thinking oh is like did they just find captain america is that what you're thinking no i go well because i knew they already found captain america but i the last time i saw the tesseract in action it disintegrated red skull and it fell out of the bottom of a plane i know they found cap like clearly they must have been looking for the tesseract do well they found it we saw howard find it he pulled it out with his little robo hand and so um so that that is a vastly more threatening image to me more than and and also we just finished doing the whole season on captain america not long ago and so it's pretty fresh (laughs) plenty of tesseract yeah and and so 
uh, yeah, no, I I almost immediately, even as many times as I've seen this movie, I almost immediately forget the opening sequence. And I go, like, I'm not connected to it at all. Even now, talking about this with you. Which is funny, because at the beginning of this minute, we get a giant 3D, or no, at the beginning of last minute, after the other mm-hmm. finishes speaking, we get a giant CG tesseract floating in space that we then fly into, yeah. leading us to the helicopter. So, is very clearly designed to say, hey, remember the Tesseract? It's yep. important. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, it again still in 60 forget about seconds, it. and yeah, I've forgotten forget about it already. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's an interesting way to, that whole thing is interesting. Um, but yeah, now we know something's happening with the Tesseract. Eric Selvig is involved, which we kind of gathered from the end of Thor. Now, I have a question for you. Not having... Well, this is a question. If you can remember, actually, let's save my question. I have a question for you. <laughs> let's talk about it in tomorrow's minute when we actually get Eric speaking and stuff. At the okay. very end of this minute, we get to see that Eric's there. We don't really get him talking, so we'll. we'll I'm going to put that put a pin in that question. Come back tomorrow. Okay. What a roller coaster. All right. I know. I know. Okay. Location. NASA. You wanted to talk a little about uh, this particular location where they're filming now. Well, they're very proud that they were able to secure this location. Like, you talk about the location, you watch all the special features about this, they love the location. This is the, then, as it was being recorded, it was the Plum Brook Station. It's now known as the Neil A. Armstrong Test Facility. It is the largest space simulator that NASA operates. And that means they, it's as giant, it is, well, I mean, you've seen it, you've been in the movie, you've been watching the movie. So uh, it's the big hangar and they can, you can go in and, and it has the giant, you know, uh, concrete uh, walls and the big door and they can close the door and they can uh, simulate conditions of space to test craft and uh, suits and stuff. So what is it? The largest vacuum chamber yes. in the world? Is that right? Yes. And it is, uh, it's on the, the, uh, shores of, of Lake Erie, not anywhere near New Mexico. Uh, and that school that gets, uh, destroyed, uh, later it is, uh, it's in outside of Sandusky. So a little bit different, a little, a little bit, different. bit different. Yeah. Very, you gotta admit like that. It's a real location, that this isn't a, like a green screen composite location. Like it's, it, this is very cool. I love this location. Like, as soon as they go inside, I mean, the elevator, obviously, that's just like some CG elevator of an elevator going down. Um, But then once we get inside and you see uh, Fury, Coulson, and Hill walking through it, and you see these columns, these, like, pipe columns holding everything up, and you see that they have those, I don't even know how you describe the the, um, industrial design of that base, but it's just like, it's this giant bolted-in base of the actual column that's holding things in place. Like, it looks like it's holding up a freaking, like, uh, aircraft carrier on top of them. Like, yeah, it the way that like, it's designed. It feels like earthquake, like, abutment. You know what I mean? Like, they're worried yeah. about, about whatever is going to happen is going to, you know, it has to be flexible and shake on the foundation. So... That's very, very cool. It also reminds me of the hull of the Enterprise in J.J. Abrams. Tooth, you paint all these things yellow, and it's the the hull of the Enterprise in the walkthrough <laughs> in J.J. Abrams 2009. Very Reboot. funny. Yeah. And then you get the staircase, which is this giant uh, curved staircase around what looks like a dome. And then we kind of come in from bo- below, and I, I presumably their staircase wound all the way down 
around the actual vacuum chamber, like this huge, huge, uh, what is it, eight stories? Is that how tall it is? I think it's, yeah. Massive. So cool. It is very, very cool. Um, and it, you know, kind of, it's a space that reminds me, the movie that I jumped to is Brazil at the end when they're inside that um, nuclear chamber or whatever. And you have just this huge, empty, hollow shell that they're inside. It's just, it's a cool space to be inside. The only facility capable of testing full-scale upper stage launch vehicles and rocket engines under simulated high altitude conditions for indefinite periods. Wow. Dope. That's what that is. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you about the elevator. Sure. Because, you know, we see them going down the elevator. It's As I said, it's probably a CG shot of it mm-hmm. um, going down. Is this just simple shorthand for secret base? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Underground base. That's all, that's all it is. Could we have done it without having that? Or do you think that we needed to have that because it's shield? <laughs> I think that uh, it was going to be in here in, inevitably. Uh, but I, could we have done it without it? You know, we, okay. So what is a better walk and talk when you go into a, a secret military facility? Like, and I'm, I'm actually asking that. That's not hyperbolic. Like putting them on an elevator gives them a fixed space and time to say, to give us some exposition. Right. And uh, at some point we need them transitioning into the space. A falling elevator is, is as good as anything else. So to your point about shorthand, absolutely, it's shorthand, and it's probably <laughs> fine. You know, it works. And if you look in, like, at the layout of this place, I mean, it kind of makes sense the way that they've kind of designed it with this base on top. You go down the elevator, you go into this big test chamber, you go to the back of this test chamber, there's a loading dock, and then there's these tunnels that leave to go out this secret exit. They have, like, all of this stuff designed in a very secret Batman, Batcave sort of looking way. And I am kind of here for it because it feels very secret government entity type of thing. Well, and because S.H.I.E.L.D. is known for having clever mechanisms for accessing secret facilities. Yeah. Right? They have to have big, you know, vault doors and secret switches and things like that. That's just what they do. The question that I have, though, is does NASA... (laughs) (laughs) Because when it comes to NASA, then I question, well, does NASA do secret underground facilities? Like, do you know, is the facility in uh, Ohio, is it underground or is it above ground? Do you know? Um, I I don't believe it is above. I don't believe it's underground. Um, The tour, the video tour you can take on NASA's website, it shows like all the pieces in their big hangers with all the NASA logos on them. And at no point does it take you in any sort of elevator where you can go underground. <laughs> it, is, it looks very, very much like it is all built on the surface. Yeah, yeah. So, Which makes sense. But it is fun to think of something being secretive. You know what it reminds me of, though, Andy, though? As, as a guy from uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, NORAD. Oh, yes. When I was a kid, like, NORAD does have some facility for getting in and out of big giant vault door and, and like, having, yeah, it feels like you're in sort of a vaulty thing, even though really, like, if it weren't for all the soldiers with guns, you could pretty much drive up to the, <laughs> to the door. Um, and it's a giant, giant door that closes and seals off an entire mountain uh, inside of Cheyenne Mountain. And it's fantastic. And it feels like this but 
but it doesn't, there is no, there's no elevator that I, that I saw in my like childhood tour that took you down deep under below where you enter like too far down there. It's multiple stories, but it doesn't feel like you're going, you know, 500 feet or miles under the mountain, apart from the fact that the mountain is above you. Well, and that's the thing with NORAD, because, I mean, I always think of war games when I think of NORAD. Sure. The fact that you're going up to a door that just goes into a mountain, and that's essentially it. It feels very secretive because it's in a mountain. And I guess if I had something like this space inside a mountain, it makes sense. Because I went into this building or this, this set of buildings that we saw in the last minute, in the middle of New Mexico. <laughs> in the middle of, <laughs> yeah, presumably no New Mexico. Well, it makes sense, though, that they would have to take an elevator to go down. Like, we didn't see anything that looked like this, so, yeah. And what you, what you didn't see at NORAD, you have to go up to the gate and say, speak, friend, and enter here. And so it's very, <laughs> <laughs> it's very Lonely Mountain kind of vibe to it. <laughs> but there is a way in in the back, there but you have to wait <laughs> till... The the Durin's Day Moon or whatever <laughs> shines its light on the keyhole. Blah, blah, blah. Oh God! Right. Totally I'm so different. Glad we can make make those kinds of jokes to each other, Eddie. It's such a relief. <laughs> <laughs> totally different franchise, but uh, we are here to here have fun. For it. Okay, absolutely. So is that it? Then they go into the thing. Well, okay. No, no, no. We got We got to talk about two things. Okay, first we got to just say. No, no mention of Maria Hill's name yet. Nope. We're we're having a conversation at, the, at this point. It seems like there is a cranky assistant working for Nick Fury who doesn't seem to want to listen to him. <laughs> Who's dressed almost like Black Widow? Yes, very much so. Um, okay, so the second question though is, in the sense of this story thread of having this character being a little more antagonistic with Nick Fury, as we talked about in our very first episode about how they had this whole alternate opening and she was potentially angling for Nick's job, all this sort of stuff. Do you, I, I don't know, do you buy, uh, like, how do you end up reading the relationship between these two characters just from watching this minute? No, it's not good. And we talked two minutes ago in the, our first minute about the antagonism of the alternate opening. And it feels very much like she is frustrated that they're in this position, that she's frustrated she's tagging along, that she doesn't trust what he's what he is uh, setting up for S.H.I.E.L.D., what their role is. And he feels equally frustrated to me when he turns to her and says, look, until the world's ending, we're going to operate as if it's going to continue spinning. Like those, like that feels like an exercise of conflict between manager and staff. And, um, and, and so, you know, it doesn't feel out of context for me. It feels like their relationship ain't great, but it, it feels legit. I guess the issue that I end up having with it is there's no introduction to the character. And it's suddenly it's a character who's just kind of taking on Nick Fury of all characters. And it makes me go, who is this person and why is she acting this way? And that's that's the question that I end up having when I watch it when I watch it without context. But isn't that the value of Maria Hill's character that Maria Hill exists as someone inside the shield organization who can stand up to nick fury oh no 
I'm not saying that. I love that. I'm just saying she gets no introduction. I have no sense of her relationship to Nick. Is he his equal? Is she directly under him? Is she a, you know, a, essentially a production assistant working or like, you know, the person who goes and gets his coffee when she's not picking up phase two? Like, what is her relationship? And so that's the thing that's like, who is this person? And why, is it normal for her to act this way or is this abnormal? And I guess that's the question is it's like, I just don't know. And that's the, that's the thing that I'm, I'm curious to see how uh, over the course of the film, when I start getting a better read on her. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Yeah. And they also start talking about phase two, which at this point is fairly mysterious, but Fury does not want her dealing with the Tesseract. He's going to deal with the Tesseract. Colson is dealing with clearing the campus. Her job is to get all the phase two prototypes out of this place. That's her priority. And what do you know of the phase two prototypes at this point in the movie? Do we know anything about phase two prototypes? At this point, nothing. And I guess I wonder, in we're the in the third minute of the movie, are we hitting a critical point where we have been introduced to far too many things to really know what we're supposed to be paying attention to. I, that is my question too, because my assessment of the rest of the movie is that it comes back to phase two prototypes when all of the Avengers are on the hover carrier or the helicarrier later. Yes. And they have that, their conflict. That's the, that's the that's what we're talking about. We're talking about shield making weapons. Exactly. That's what, right. What phase two is is they had been uh, well. We they never did it during the battle with Hydra, but now they are examining all of the the Hydra weapons are the uh, the Arnimulation ninety nine L assault weapons and other Hydra Tesseract powered weapons. Those are essentially what phase two are. They're, they've been storing them. Oh, and also we didn't mention. From Thor, they actually kept the destroyer, and they used the destroyer weapon to come up with a, a, their own weapon based on that. So all of that ties into what they just call Phase Two. Okay, and we don't know anything about that yet, and that's okay. We don't know anything about that. Well, it's okay, but again, like we've been introduced to the other, to the, uh, the Chitauri. We've been introduced to whoever this person is talking to. We've been introduced to Maria Hill. We don't know who she is. We've been introduced to some problem going on with the Tesseract. And now phase two is just like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that, again, you watch this multiple times, you're going to learn what all this stuff is. But on first viewing, it's just like, what am I supposed to be holding on to here? What's important? What isn't? And that I think I feel like we're hitting a point with this film where maybe they're putting a few too many things in here for people to pay attention to. I think we'll let's see how the rest of at least the rest of the week plays out. I don't think I wonder if it is a if it's a detriment to the story yet, uh, because I don't think we get much more than this before our antagonist appears and we're into the action of forming the team. I, I guess, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I'm just thinking, like, when I first saw this movie, I think I completely missed everything at yeah. the start of the film with Phase 2 until, like, Phase 2 is happening later. I don't even think I remembered that it happened at the beginning of the film, that they even bring it up until, like, several viewings later. I'm like, oh, that's what they were doing. Yeah, you know what, Andy? I mean, in that regard, this entire opening sequence is a great big Easter egg for about an hour and a half later. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> or not even for an hour and a half later. It's like the, maybe the third or fourth time you watch the movie, watch you go, movie. oh, that's what, yeah. that, oh, that's what right. they're talking about. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Lots of stuff. All right. So we get, we get to meet, what's his, we get to meet Sel, uh, Selvig, but he doesn't speak. So we're not going to talk about him yet. We're not going to talk about him yet. We're going to hold off on that until tomorrow. Maria Good. Hill is sent off by Fury to go deal with phase two, whatever that is. And again, just like Fury, who says, do better to Coulson, she says, with me to her team. I love how brief they are in their military directions for each other. Yeah, they're very quick. Do you know who those uh, people are? Are you going to start name dropping uh, soldiers and extras? Surprisingly, very few uh, extra people are credited as, you know, shield agents, things like that. But there are a ton of people who have added themselves to IMDb as shield guards, shield agents. And I just have no way of knowing which one's which. Please. So, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. So, okay. But we love you all if you're listening. And uh, we love you if you're not listening. <laughs> we love you either way. We're you were love here at the Marvel Movie Minute. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. We'll be back tomorrow for Minute Four. So thanks as always, Pete. Hey, thank you, Andy. Tomorrow, Selvig speaks. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This week's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>